0: The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi, folks. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast, all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out Anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out Anchor.fm.
1: Come with me. What we can make
0: You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Tonight, we're going to do the conclusion of the Unseen Forces series. Uh, we're going to start in back in the book here, which, uh, just for a review for people, is a book written by Manly P. Hall, and it was titled Unseen Forces, Nature Spirits, Thought Forms, Ghosts, and Specters, The Dweller on the Threshold, and... Uh, it was published by uh, Mr. Hall's Publishing Company, and I believe the copyright date on this was in 1923 or 1924, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, this uh, this series that we're doing tonight is directly out of this book in Mr. Manley P. Hall's own words. So, and I will just throw in my own uh, opinion and take on things as I see fit here in the uh, mists of the reading here, and we're going to pick up where we left off, and this would be chapter 5 of the book. (coughs) So let's begin. Chapter 5, The Dweller on the Threshold Character, and those things which are really the measure of human consciousness, are not brought, brought with the primitive germ of being out of the infinite. They are the fruitage of experience and the mellowing that comes with spiritual age. The primal spark, the unborn deathless thing in each organism knows itself not, save by those bodies that it has built through contact with the inferior worlds, which we call the realms of form. The first spark, this divine germ of spirit, makes possible all growth and expression. But growth in the true spiritual understanding of the word is the result of the acceptance into the consciousness of the evolving atoms of those diverse factors which we group together under the heading of experience and without which the spirit cannot improve its primal lot. The world that we know is the kindergarten of spirit. Here child souls in the making are instructed in realities by means of unrealities. As the cutting out of paper dolls and making of little ships from strips of paper is the first step in the education of a child, so things apparently very far from truth mold in a mysterious way the character of man into the paths which will later lead him to wisdom. Few here realize that they are on a probation in this world, but such is the case. (coughs) We are forced to hug the spokes of the wheel of illusion until... Like the child in school, we outgrow our class, and are promoted to a higher one. As there are children in school who never seem to learn and who stay, year after year, in one grade, so those who do not master the problems of the greater school must remain wandering in matter until they realize the plan and, and it says in parentheses here, what is vastly more important, live in accordance with the reality they have discovered. At the present time, all growth is carried on through the physical body. All the higher vehicles express themselves through this medium and are molded by the application made of their respective forces in the material world. Let us list them and describe how they are influenced. (coughs) 1. The Mind Body This is the highest vehicle that man has at the present time, save a few very highly advanced adepts and masters who are functioning consciously in the Buddhic body. In the majority of people, the mind body appears as a yellow cloud around the head and shoulders. The greater the thought force of the person, the more completely organized the mental body becomes. The brain in its vehicle in matter and the development of this superphysical body depends entirely upon the exercise of thought force, not upon other creatures, but upon the problems of life through the faculties of reason and logic. I'm going to pause here, folks. Just so you're aware, um, even if you find these things that uh, Mr. Hall is talking about here to be absolute nonsense, if you think it's nonsense or whether you believe it or not, that's immaterial because what you you need to understand is there are people in positions of power in this world that very much believe these things and act upon them. And the things that they do uh, with this knowledge or with these beliefs that they have will affect us in one way or another. So it's important that we understand exactly where it is these people are coming from. And uh, I think there are a lot of essential truths that are kept uh, in many of these ideas and that are put forward here. But uh, just like everything else, it's it's kind of twisted and a little bit perverted from what the original meanings have been. So uh, we'll continue on here. But we just covered... Uh, number one there, which he calls the mind body and says that this is the uh, highest vehicle that man has at the present time with the exception of a few highly adept masters. Like they always say here, uh, they claim to have some sort of uh, supernatural abilities beyond what everybody else does and and we'll get to more on that later. So, But uh, let's move on to number two here. <coughs> number two. The Astral Body This body is much older than the mind and is therefore much more perfectly developed. It expresses through the fire in the human blood. The emotions, passions, and impressions with which man excites his organisms are expressions of this body. The Heart As an organ of influence over the destiny of consciousness expresses the qualities of the astral body and the mastery and directing of the emotional forces constitute the building of the astral soul body in man. The emotions are always swayed between extremes, and it is the balancing of opposites and the mastering of extremes here in life that molds the astral body into a permanent vehicle for the expression of spirit. Gonna pause there, folks. A couple of important ideas tied up right here in this little paragraph here. The first one being is uh, that. Uh, The astral body expresses through the fire in the human blood. You see how they tie the idea of fire to the human blood. And this is an an important idea to keep in mind later as we we move further along here in our studies in these various things to try to garner some more meaning out of this. But uh, this is uh, an expression of the emotions, passions, and impressions of man. And it points out that the heart is an organ of influence of destiny of your consciousness okay and uh this relates once again to the astral body and you know you can see the the mind body the astral body this is your your brain and your heart centers together uh it's a philosophical type idea Uh, it's it's reason measured with uh Intuition, See, and that, that's kind of where this comes along. But let's move along with the reading. Don't want to get hung up on too many fine points here. We'll, we'll get to that later when we talk about these things some more in uh, perhaps a different study. <coughs> Number three, the physical body. This vehicle composed of the chemical dense form and the etheric or vital double is in principle the oldest of man's connections with the external universe and forms at the time the focusing point for all of the other bodies. The efficiency of this body measures the expression of all higher vehicles. This shell forms the positive connection between the school of material experience and the subtle forces which man is seeking to unfold. Through this body and its expression, all growth is now being carried on, When the inventor first outlines his idea, it must be adapted to practical needs and modified to meet the requirements of manufacture. In the same way, it is in the physical world that the schemes of the consciousness are put to practical test. Thus, the physical world becomes the testing field of life, and only those who pass through it and translate their theories upon its anvil are capable of really knowing the efficiency of their ideas. We may now consider some of the expressions by which we have learned to judge the characters and lives of those whom we come in contact. These are not gifts of the immortal spirit, but rather the gleanings from the fields of life when it has been lived intelligently. We know these as soul qualities. And I'm going to pause here, folks. Now, you hear that there's more uh, important ideas here this physical body that we live in is basically the anchoring point of all these other uh, bodies as he calls them here the astral body the mind body the etheric body okay the physical body is the anchor point for this and this is why I I will say uh, something to the effect that uh, man is the gateway this is what I'm talking about here Uh, our physical form that we have here this is a testing ground okay but this is also uh, being the testing ground where the testing is done and where all these different uh, aspects of our philosophical reality these these different realities that overlap it's the focal point it's it's where they're all anchored to so see we're anchored in this physical plane and we have so many other things going on in, say, different realms around us that we're unaware of, spiritual things. And these are some highly philosophical ideas. And like I've mentioned before, whether you believe any of this stuff or not immaterial. What you need to understand is there are people out there who are in positions of power in this world that do believe this stuff and act heavily upon it. So uh, from there, let's get back to the reading, though. Um, Mr. Hall was talking about uh, soul qualities, and he has them listed out here, and we're going to, to go through them. Soul quality number one. Virtue. Virtue is innocence transmuted into intelligent realization of moral right. This can be accomplished only as the result of experience. Number two. Continuity. The faculty of developing a certain line of reasoning and carrying it to a successful conclusion without allowing outside interests or or desires to divert the mind is the result of long ages spent in mastering mental forces and in developing will to the place where it directs the emotions. And I'm going to pause there. There's an important idea being uh, applied right there. Um, He's talking about... uh, long ages spent mastering mental forces and in developing will. pay attention to that word because that word's important to the mystery schools folks. will De- developing will to the place where it directs the emotions. So see it's about controlling your emotions and that's one of the reasons why they use emotions uh, to control people because if you know you're controlling somebody's emotions, they're not in control of themselves. see? And that's one of these most important things. We need to be in control of our own emotions. And if we're not in control of our emotions, guess what? That leaves the door open for somebody else to be in control of your emotions. That's why they use things like fear so much uh, to control us. But let's get back to the reading, though. Number three, discrimination. This power manifests as the ability to decide correctly among a number of apparently equal yet diverse possibilities as to which is most suitable to the needs of the organism. Experience is the only way by which farsightedness on practical problems can be evolved. Number 4. Balance The power to remain unmoved by passing conditions is the result gained by a careful analysis of life and the realization that the world we live in is to be studied and analyzed, but never assumed as a reality. Man can never renounce that which he believes in or that to, to, which to him is a reality. He must be beyond the veil before he can be free from its folds. Gonna pause there, folks. You hear that? You do you hear? what he said there. Uh, The world is to be studied and analyzed, but never assumed as a reality. Man can never renounce that which he believes in or that which to him is a reality. He must be beyond the veil before he can be free from its folds. A couple important ideas there. There's more to our reality than what meets the eye, than what we can uh, perceive with our senses. Uh, That, I think, is beyond the shadow of a doubt that that's the case. But there's another idea that he has mixed up in here. He says you must be beyond the veil before you could be free from its folds. So uh, we're anchored in our beliefs here. You see, that's what he says. Now, this is a concept, this whole being beyond the veil thing. Uh, A lot of these people claim that uh, these very high adepts Uh, within these secret orders, are are able to uh, transcend this whole idea of the veil. Or, uh, as it's also called sometimes, once they uh, cross the abyss, that's what they call it. Once they've done that, then they've transcended uh, things like morals and dogmas. And, uh, you know, that's an important name of a, a book by a Freemason, Morals and Dogma. But see, they they believe that once they've uh, achieved this uh, high enough uh, wisdom or or whatever they want to call it, this illumination, once they've hit this high enough level, that they are above and beyond all of these things. See, So they believe that uh, the rules don't apply to them anymore because they're beyond that. See, they think of themselves as deified beings at that point. But uh, I don't want to, you know... Get too hung up on that idea here, but that's kind of what he's alluding to here when he says he must be beyond the veil before he can be free from its folds. Uh, Let's get on with the reading though. Number five, wisdom. Understanding is always the result of actual experience. The philosopher with his gray hair and bent shoulders has lived life until he knows its ways and byways and can therefore assist others to better understanding of nature's realities age and soul sorry let me start that again age and soul power alone brings mellowness which is the basis of wisdom experience gives many other things some apparently good and others evil many feel that to wallow in the mire of sin is a great mistake others believe that god must have some better and easier way of instructing his children than by forcing them to battle in darkness for their salvation This must ever be an open question that each must settle for himself. All around us are thousands in the mire of degeneracy. A large part of our population is morally or physically unclean. It is too late to warn against mistakes such as all make and most uphold, so all that remains is to assist those who have fallen to get back on their feet and learn from their sorrows to avoid the pitfalls next time no law can be passed that will make people good but suffering makes people careful when advice is ignored sorrow and disappointments make us think when warnings are allowed to pass unheeded in this way man learns through his experiences when he refuses to listen to anything else All along the line of life, our greatest sinners have made our greatest saints, not because they made mistakes, but because they learned through experience to correct them. We should all thank God that we have the power to suffer, for through pain great souls are born. Adversity overpowers the sluggard, but stimulates the soul to action and gives incentive to those who seek to achieve. Adversity tests the spirit and measures the resolve. With the mastery of adversity, courage is born. Going to pause there, folks. Um, Quite a bit of that, of what he just said there, is absolutely true. Um, We do uh, live in a reality where this is a uh, a reality of necessity and hardship. Uh, We need to be tried through these times, and this builds character. He's right. Uh, Sorrow, disappointment, suffering does build character. It uh, builds our integrity and helps us to learn uh, the difference between right and wrong. helps us to learn, you know, what's good and what's bad. See, we can appreciate the good things if we know what the bad things are. Uh, And that's kind of uh, one of the areas where this whole kind of principle of duality, as some people call it, or polarity, comes into play. We wouldn't know what is actually good if there was no bad. See, um, and and that's the whole thing. In order to appreciate one, you must know what the other is. And this is kind of the blessing and the curse of uh, what would be uh, construed as the gift of the knowledge of good and evil Uh, that was uh, purveyed through the original sin in the Garden of Eden. So this is kind of a two-edged sword when it comes to that. Uh, In order to know good, we need to know evil as well. So, once we realize what those things are, we can appreciate the good, see, but uh, without understanding or knowing what is truly bad there, we wouldn't appreciate the good, we wouldn't know the good from the bad. So, it's an important idea, and you know, it's kind of highly philosophical to think about, but... I think he's correct there. We, we do go through sorrow and we do go through rough times. But if we learn and grow from them, that's the direction we need to go. We need to grow from these things and become better people. <coughs> Let's get back to the reading, though. <coughs> we should thank God for the adversary, for he measures the true worth of man. What would I do under certain conditions is a question each should ask himself. Few of us know, and fewer still, would do in a moment of extremity the thing planned at leisure. Place people in various positions, and then and there they judge and measure themselves before the world. They need neither accuser nor defender. Their actions are the gauges of their souls, and their souls tell their age in the cosmic scheme of things, as no protestations or assertions can possibly do. Actions and attitudes are proofs words are merely expressions of emotion which are seldom dependable man often argues with himself to prove to his own sense to his own senses things that he honestly knows are untrue and usually the human animal convinces himself of the reality of the falsehood before he can possibly prove it to another in fact he seldom proves it to any save himself and i'm going to pause there folks those are some very wise words right there Aren't they? Um, this, this is true. We, we don't know how we would react in a situation until it happens. Even though we may plan out what our reaction to such a said situation would be, we really don't know until it actually comes to pass. Right? So I think that's part of what our integrity is built upon. And uh, we do often lie to ourselves about things to just kind of prop up uh, whatever our belief systems and stuff are he's correct about that as well because here he says man often argues with himself to prove to his own senses things that he honestly knows are untrue see that and we do that all the time this is called cognitive dissonance it happens and this is why it's so hard a lot of times to wake people up to the realities that are going on around us because they don't see it that way they don't want to see it that way they're comfortable in their beliefs you see so this is true. Like, this is a true thing, what he's saying here. But anyway, let's get back to the reading. The building of the soul. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, folks. Let's, let's continue on here. The building of the soul. At the present time, we use the two words soul and spirit, as though they meant the same thing. This is not correct. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel 18.4 Spirit does not die. In occult philosophy, spirit is that ever-existing essence, which is the immortal part of all created things, in any of the seven worlds that manifest as a cosmic scheme. It is indestructible, uncreated, and the germ of divinity in all manifesting creations. It is the God in you, the eternal permanence, the triple spirit of being. Going to pause there, folks couple important ideas are right there in this uh, paragraph here okay first thing is spirit and soul are not the same thing and when people understand this uh, it, it op- opens up a whole new understanding of things for you uh, so especially when you, you look at it from the vantage point he's going at it here and he also says that uh, the spirit is the ever-existing essence of uh, which is the immortal part of all created things in any of the seven worlds. Seven worlds, folks. Keep that uh, keep that in mind. That might be important later. Uh, we'll talk about that some other time, though. But, uh, you know, that these things are highly philosophical in a lot of different ways. When you're thinking of spirit, spirit is that essence of us all. It's that divine spark, per se. Uh, that divinity that we're given, that, that little uh, fractal of divinity that's within each of us. So that's spirit. Now soul is something different and we'll get to what your soul is here very shortly here. So let's move along. <coughs> Back to the reap. <coughs> Excuse me, gotta clear my throat. Soul is the garment of spirit. It is the fruitage of all experience as gained by manifestation in the concrete worlds of mind stuff, astral material, and physical substance. The soul is the fruitage of life, and the attaining of this golden garment is the real reason for life. Going to pause there, folks. Now, this is a really important idea to grab a hold of, okay? He refers to the the soul as the attaining of a golden garment Okay, Keep that in mind. Golden garment. This is tied up in the mythological story of the Golden Fleece. Do you remember that story? That's what they're talking about here. This golden garment. This is the soul. This is the soul vehicle uh, that we use to pass on to different worlds when we leave this life. The golden garment. See? And uh, these ideas are pretty important. And I think there may be... uh, you know, uh, some truth to, um, what he's talking about here. And, uh, as to how spirit and soul relate, um, there's a lot of different ideas as to how this is. And we'll see here, uh, how he explains it here. But, uh, just keep that in mind, that idea of this golden garment. And whenever you hear, uh, references to, uh, the golden fleece or the story of Jason and the Argonauts, or, uh, Any of these type things. There's actually even an order of uh, secret society called the Order of the Golden Fleece. See? And this is also, uh, you know, when these different secret societies and stuff, a lot of them have these different names that uh, relate to this. And it's a very important story to them because of this reason. So uh, I just thought I'd point that out. But anyway, let's get back to the reading. I don't want to get too hung up on that for right now. I could go off on an awful lot of tangents on some of this stuff but uh, I think it's important to try and stay focused here anyway back to the reading (sighs) excuse me incident is valueless save for the impression that it leaves upon the nature of the person passing through it by an occult process this impression is molded into the soul body as another thread in the seamless robe of the spiritual bridegroom gonna pause there folks the bridegroom did you hear that are any of you familiar with the Bible how the church is the bridegroom of Christ see the idea he's you know putting forward here that uh, this this golden garment that we'll be wearing will will be dressed as the fruit to be uh, the bride of Christ the spiritual bridegroom you hear that anyway let's get back to the reading don't want to get too hung up on that idea. In nature nothing is lost, and this vehicle, created by the assimilation of experience since the time millions of years ago, when the consciousness was first differentiated, is called the soul, the molder of destiny, and the thing that must be consulted by the consciousness when important decisions are to be made. The soul in man measures his standard of right and wrong on the scale of things known. It is the basis of judgment and the inspiration behind the voice of conscience. Therefore, we say with the seer of old, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Not only does the soul record in its subtle organism the successes of life, but it also records the failures. Upon it and into it are etched all of the various actions that make up life. Therefore, the soul is essentially dual in its nature, that which registers successes and that which registers failures. The things which we have done well become our guardian angels, guiding us and inspiring us to further achievement, while those things, wherein we have sinned, become our accusers, and stand over us with the weight of our own mistakes. At the doors of the eastern temples stand two dogs, one laughing and the other leering horribly. They represent our own vices and virtues which we all must pass when we seek to enter the path that leads to perfection these two qualities the good and the evil within ourselves are ever with us one points to heaven and the other ever stands as the great problem the beast is still part of our nature and he will remain so Until we transmute the adversary into the inspiration to greater victories over self. This adversary within, this accumulation of unpaid karma, this body of sin, this ever present obstacle, this spirit of negation, the ever menacing figure of the evil in our own natures, we call, or sorry, was called by the ancients the dweller on the threshold. Gonna pause right there. This is an interesting concept right here. You see, the adversary. Now, he's clearly referring to uh, what in the Bible is described as Satan or Satan, the adversary. Okay? And he's saying the adversary exists within us all. And uh, I would say this is true to a certain degree. We definitely have our own flaws and temptations and all of these other things that we have to deal with. And, uh, that's kind of what he's pointing out here. The dweller on the threshold. So, uh, let's continue on with the reading. Because, you see, what he was pointing out is sometimes we're our own accuser, our own worst enemy with things. Uh, so, like, this this is, uh, you know, like what I would consider to be a truth in life. I mean, this, this adversarial uh, type spirit, uh, sticks with us, and and really, we need to work our way through many of these things. We all struggle with these different ideas, but, uh, you know, I I find this uh, take on things pretty interesting, so let's move on. We're on to Chapter 6 here now, The Passing of the Dweller. The first great step in the initiations of the ancients was the passing of the strange monster that dwelt on the borderline between the physical and spiritual worlds, The children of light were told that they could never go forth into distant lands or earn the wages of master builders until they faced with courage and resolve the demon that dwelt ever with them but was invisible, until they sought to awaken within themselves the subtle forces of which he was composed. Most people do not meet this fearful figure until at the time of death. Their intelligence functions for a short time on the borderland of life and death so-called which is his dwelling-place there he crouches the thing built with the sins of the flesh and the crimes committed in darkness a fearful specter of unearthly terror the sum total of perversion the aggregate of misused force and perverted talents Have we ever stopped to think that the things we do unwisely will sometime confront us, like accusing judges, and bar our way to the light that we will someday recognize and seek to serve? Gonna pause there, folks. This is absolutely uh, one of the, the ways to describe this adversary or Satan. Uh, but you'll also notice that he likes to put in there the children of light were told that they could never go forth into distant lands and uh, or earn the wages of master builders. See how they're invoking this idea that there are some uh, within these secret schools who uh, you know, have transcended these things? That's the inference that he puts there uh, with these ideas because this going forth into distant lands uh, this is about the soul body going into, you know, foreign countries. See, that's another term that they use sometimes. Traveling in foreign countries. This is kind of like, uh, the idea of astral projection or some such things in, in certain traditions. But, uh, anyway, you could see how, uh, you know, he's kind of putting this thing into perspective that, uh, there's this, this dwelling place, this borderland between life and death, uh, where this dweller on the threshold exists. And this would be the adversary, or Satan, you know, in, in biblical terms, that way. This is the uh, the beast that we have to conquer. This is uh, basically like the overcoming the animal self and uh, achieving the higher spiritual state, see? It's an allegorical type description, but, uh, you know, you could think of it in a physical type way as well, or maybe a literal type way. Uh, That's, you know, really uh, up to the individual themselves, depending on what their beliefs are and stuff like that. And like I had stated earlier, whether you believe any of this stuff or not, there are people in positions of power in this world that absolutely do, and they, they act upon these different beliefs, so... It's important to know what it is they think, what it is they believe, uh, what it is they act upon, and why they act upon these things. And we're getting there. So let's go ahead and continue with the reading. (coughs) Far back when man first sinned, this creature was born and cried out from the blood of the first of God's children that was slain. Hate and fear, jealousy and greed, passion and lust, thoughtlessness and crime... All these have fed it, in every human thing, until today, man carries with him an all-powerful thing, reared and nursed by the worst that is in him, a beast-like demon, ever spurring him on to crime and perversion, ever tempting him through the medium of habit to sink back into the mire of degeneracy from which he is crawling so painfully. This is the guardian of the threshold. We have never seen him, but every day we are fighting him, struggling to be free from the coils of sin, which are his manifestation. Every time we master an unworthy trait of character, we are passing the dweller on our threshold. For we are divided from the world of spirit by our sins, and when we master our own mistakes and do right where we did wrong before, sin becomes less of an obstacle. Finally, we are able to face this creature for the last time. And among the ethers of the higher world struggle with the dragon of karma until at last we vanquish him and bathing in his blood become immortal. For energy is the blood of the dweller and he is built of the energy we have wasted or misused. Going to pause there folks. There's some important ideas bound up here and many of them are allegorical in a sense and many of them are, are kind of a more philosophical take on things. But, uh, like, some of them are very much spot on. See, we all struggle with this spiritual force, per se, this this spirit of evil. And the Bible talks about this in the book of Ephesians, where we wrestle not against uh, flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So, this is what this is talking about. This is a spiritual reality. That's true. But, see, the thing is, uh, many of these spiritual things that we and spiritual essences and beings that we wrestle with uh, they're tied directly to our own actions and our own um, you know what shall we say sin nature I guess is the best way to put it so you know we we could see this and this is also uh, there's uh, some more important ideas here like the idea of the fighting with the dragon of karma see that's why the dragons are depicted in so much ancient artwork and stuff like that. That's what that's really about. It's, it's symbolism. It's tied up with the symbolism. So, But he's saying here, until at last, with the we struggle with the dragon of karma, until at last we vanquish him. And bathing in his blood, going to pause there. See, bathing in his blood, blood being fire, divine fire. You, you remember how he made that allusion earlier here? Fire, you could relate blood, fire, spirit, all these things together. See, uh, we become immortal. Okay, that's what he says. For energy is the blood of the dweller, and he is built of the energy we have wasted or misused. So, any time that we uh, direct this this energy, that would be the spiritual fire. That would be uh, the equivalent of blood. Um, the same thing here. You can see how these ideas are all tied together. This this energy that we give to these misdeeds that we do, or this sin that we perform uh, in this world, the, all the bad things we do. This fuels uh, this dragon of karma. See, this dweller. So he's built upon all the bad things we've done. See, so every time we sin or we do something bad, this kind of fuels the spiritual fires of this dweller on the threshold. So that's kind of what he's alluding to here. And this is, you know, what he's talking about when he's speaking of this dragon. And uh, he thinks that uh, through the conquering of these sins and vices that we have, if if we do that, then we have immortality. But here's the thing, okay? We being imperfect men, we're incapable of overcoming all of these uh, different flaws within ourselves. We are flawed beings. See, uh, we're we're broken. We're broken beings, and uh, that's why Jesus came to Earth and paid the price for us, so that we could be fixed. We could have this immortality, and we don't have to try to fight this dragon alone and earn it on our own. But see, that's, that's where the, uh, the beliefs and the philosophies of like the, the secret societies and stuff differ from what uh, you know, Christ taught. See, he taught that just through our calling on him and uh, believing in him, accepting him as our Savior, that we can be saved from this and, and we could overcome this and achieve this immortality and uh, he said he'd be a stumbling block to these people and and his teachings certainly are a stumbling block to these people Uh, they twist all these different ideas but this once again relates back to the idea of the differences between what they would call the the sons of the philosophy of fire and the sons of the waters of faith see they think that the sons of the waters of faith are weak and they're the ones that will accept this salvation from Christ because they do nothing. They're, they're content to feed upon the work of others, see? And they believe that these philosophers of fire, this, this uh, these fire philosophers that, per se, these masons and, and all these others that are part of these secret schools, they're the builders. They're the ones that do the work. And they earn their own salvation through works, see? And that's completely antithetical to what christ taught we're not saved through works okay but they you know that's what they're talking about here they they sincerely believe that they can be saved through their works and uh that the ones that uh would just call upon christ for salvation are weaklings see they believe that and they believe themselves superior because of that but anyway i don't want to get too hung up on that side detail but let's get back to the reading here The dweller differs from the elementals and nature spirits in this. While the latter live in the ethers, they are a creation in themselves and float about in the essences. The guardian is attached to man and never leaves him. It grows or diminishes with the sins of the individual of whom it forms a part. The guardian of the threshold is really the sin body of all creatures who have individual intelligence. Man is the only intelligent creature that we know, but there are many others in nature. The planet Mars is the sin body of the solar god and is therefore his threshold guardian, but the deity has transmuted this power into the dynamo of the solar system. Going to pause there, folks. You hear that? They're claiming that uh, the uh, planet Mars is the sin body of the solar god. See? The solar god and uh, that is therefore his threshold guardian and that this is the has been transmuted into the power that's the dynamo of the solar system see it's it's all about uh, polarity the positive and the negative and there's some truth to being the positive and the negative the polarity of things this is actually how the universe actually works uh, it's it's all relates back to electricity and magnetism once again, uh, the dielectric field this this kind of thing. this is kind of uh you know the form of of how mani- things manifest in our universe, in our world that we are aware of and it's it's this whole yeah you know, what you could call I guess I'd say it's polarity more than duality, but some people refer to it as a duality. But this dualism or polarity creates the dynamo that, you know, everything runs on. It creates the electrical spark that everything runs on, see. But anyway, back to the reading. Those who would serve their gods safely and join the little band of immortals must first master their own sins. The price of entrance into the temple is the conquest of our own lower natures, for we cannot serve both God and mammon. To force one part of the organism to develop spiritual powers, while another side of the nature is a servant to vice and material things, is to invite insanity and death. Therefore, before one takes the true path of discipleship, he must have a long talk with himself and see how many of the things of his lower nature he is allowing to tie him to earth. Then begins the great battle so often symbolized in the religious ceremonials of the ancients, which must result in the death of the lower nature, the dweller. From the ashes of the flaming conflict the higher nature rises and becomes one with the spirit of light. This is the mystery of the crucifixion, and the inner meaning behind the third degree of the Masonic rite. In a small way, it is played out in life every day, but at last, it must be faced, and a decision made. I'm gonna pause there. So you see how he's equating this to uh, the ceremonials of the ancients. This is one of the things that uh, uh, their initiations represent. Is this overcoming this dweller? See the idea of the dweller, the guardian, the dweller-guardian of the the threshold. See that's that's what they're talking about. This would be the equivalent of the adversary in the Bible, Satan. And each man has to overcome this. And that's one of the things they, uh, you know, include in some of their initiation ceremonies. And he's also taking, uh, you know, some biblical text here and serving it up as a proof for this for he see he says here uh, the price of entrance into the temple is the conquest of our own lower natures for we cannot serve both god and mammon see how he takes that biblical text and takes it out of context and uses it there uh, but uh, anyway he's talking about uh, these different ideas from the ashes of the flaming conflict the higher nature rises and becomes one with the spirit of light well what spirit is he talking about folks who's the spirit of light Uh, i'll just you know leave that go for now but uh, i i think if you know you're putting two and two together you could figure that out but at any rate he's talking about this whole idea of uh transcending the animal nature and moving up to this higher nature the death and rebirth from the ashes of the flaming conflict this is the phoenix idea see Um, anyway let's let's get back to the reading though the sins of the flesh while any of the following traits are left in his nature man has no right to seek first-hand knowledge on spiritual subjects gonna pause there did you hear that? He said, well, any of the following traits are left in his nature. Man has no right to seek firsthand knowledge on spiritual subjects. So he's saying, if you're in any way, uh, caught up in the physical material world, the, the animal existence, you have no right to seek spiritual subjects. See, uh, and this is one of the, the ways in which these, uh, different secret societies try to keep people in line. See, uh, they they say only those who are worthy can, you know, know these secrets or achieve this, uh, you know, supernatural power or ability or whatever through these different things. And this is how they keep people in check and keep them going uh, along with them. See, they, they, they'll think they're not worthy. They're just not worthy enough. And so that's why they don't understand or they don't see or they're not able to do these things. And they'll convince these people that, you know, there are those higher up uh, within these orders and stuff that know all these secrets and can do all these many mystical things and and this kind of stuff. And this is the bait that they keep them going. This is the carrot that they dangle in front of them to keep them following the orders. See, the the ultimate secret at the top of all of this is just how to control people. See, that's what they do masterfully. But anyway, I don't want to get too much off subject here, but that's... uh, kind of what what that indicates there doesn't it uh, they're saying you're you're ignorant you know you're not allowed to seek out spiritual things you're not good enough that's what he's saying there and that is counter to uh, what Christ teaches us he'll meet you where you're at see and, and that's the truth and and this is different see what they're teaching is different and that's why Christ once again why he said he'll be a stumbling block for these people because this is the opposite of what he's told us but let's get back to the reading. <clears throat> this does not mean that we should not study, but he must keep away from occult things that will work upon his superphysical nature and organism. All of the following things build and strengthen the power of the dweller. And there's a list here we'll read all these different things. Hate, sorrow, selfishness, pride, fear, emotionalism, egotism, attachment, greed, passion, dislikes, contention, excitement, lust, sulking, argument, anger, dishonesty, lying, and demands. See, those are all the things that build and strengthen the power of this dweller on the threshold, folks. These are the things that, uh, you know the adversary uses against us. Anyway, let's get back to the reading here. All students are subject to these failings. That is expected, and there is no special disgrace in having them, for only the gods are without fault. Mayhaps even they err sometimes. But until these problems have been honestly faced and worked out, no one has the cosmic right to dabble in those things which lie behind the veil that divides this world from others. These are things we must meet and tests we must face, and our usefulness depends upon how we meet and master them. For every one of these faults makes us useless to the great ones who so greatly need help from the world of men. Going to pause there the great ones capital G in great and capital o in ones you know we'll, we'll get to where he what he's talking about here but you hear how he says uh, we have no cosmic right to dabble in these things that lie behind the veil that divide this world from the others see until we get these things in check hmm let's continue on here this is where it gets interesting now what kind of universe would we live in if our gods were subject to the failings listed above? If the sun should get angry, or the masters begin to run things according to their own egotism, what would happen to us? If we wish to reach positions of trust, we must be as passionless, patient, and kind as the gods themselves no one ever reached the position of mastery any other way than by passing the guardian of the lower nature and transmuting into creative powers the sins which give the dweller his power gonna pause there folks do you hear that no one ever reached the position of mastery any other way than by passing the guardian of the lower nature and transmuting into creative powers the sins which gave the dweller his power so you see he's talking about uh, transmutation in a sense here Uh, but he's also you know telling us that uh, it's only through passing uh, this guardian of the lower nature that we could rise above this okay so um, let's continue on with the reading here (coughs) the three steps there are three distinct steps in the attainment of wisdom, and all growth must take place in accordance with these steps. If man really desires the boon of wisdom, he must be willing to accept it as the gods have seen fit to bestow it. going to pause there again, folks. You'll notice he's constantly referencing the gods, lowercase g here. Okay? That, that'll be important later. We'll see, uh, you know, when we get to some later studies here. But let's continue on. Number one. The student must prepare himself for the influx of wisdom, this he does through right thought, right action, and right attitude. Right thought is the open mind, ready to consider all things, a humble mind willing to receive the crumbs from the feasts of the wise, a charitable mind condemning none but itself, a far-sighted mind capable of seeing good in all things and ultimate good for all things. Right action consists of proper care of the body, proper exercise, and a proper place in the great material battle of life. Man grows by contacting growing things. When he is able to contact all forms of life pleasantly, with consideration, with the heart of the helper, and with the mind of the student, he grows. Right attitude means that everything is undertaken in the spirit of love, truth, and a sincere, unselfish desire to assist in making the world a better, truer place in which to live. Right attitude means cheerfulness, hopefulness, and cooperation with all that is seeking to grow. It means consideration for all, even when they disagree with us, realizing that man must not work for man, but for God, and that each has his separate account. And I'm going to pause there, folks. All this stuff sounds really nice and true, doesn't it? I would say a lot of it does. And see, that's why I say a lot of these different teachings, um, they're muddled up with a lot of truth. And like, I would say a lot of what these uh, secret societies teach, there's a lot of truth in there, but there's a little bit of poison mixed with it as well. So we need to be wary of these things. But, you know, what he's saying there holds true, doesn't it? Let's continue on. Number two. Having prepared himself for the coming of wisdom by cleansing his body, broadening his mind, and opening his heart, he must then apply himself to the task of digesting the knowledge that comes to him. The arranging of facts so that he will be of practical use in the world is no little task. Much that we hear from occultists is of no value in solving everyday problems, and well, The technical knowledge is necessary to a teacher it must be presented in a way that will serve otherwise it might as well remain unsaid the second step is the actual coming of the wisdom itself and this in turn prepares the way for the third stage number three having prepared for and received the light the third stage is that of using the knowledge in the best and most convincing way this is no child's play It requires the wisdom and understanding of the gods themselves. People take the spiritual sciences too lightly. They do not realize that the enlightened ones are picked from the very cream of the earth. The greatest minds, the most beautiful souls, and the greatest successes are the ones chosen to serve the band of spiritual ones. And and spiritual ones has capital letters, folks. Modern occultism is filled with failures who were never of any value to themselves or to anyone else. If these scatterbrains think for a moment they are going to be lifted up in a few short months or years, they are very much mistaken. The masters, and that's with a capital M, use only the worthy ones. What are we or what can we do? that makes us worthy to ask for spiritual assistance in the employ, in the employment office of God what are our references what letters of recommendation do we bring from our last employer our friends our world the following case illustrates what guardian of the threshold means and he goes on to tell a little story here so let's let's listen to this story mrs x an elderly lady is such a gossip that she is without a friend on earth No one dares to speak in her presence. She has been married twice, but both homes have been broken up. She blames others, but all who know her realize that she is the one responsible. She has an ungodly temper, a sour disposition, and a body filled with acids and improper foods. She spends most of her time regretting unfortunate conditions of years ago, feeling that the world is against her. She will not believe that she is selfish, and she spends all her time telling what she knows. She expects everyone to agree with, her and calls them fools when they do not. One minute she wants to embrace and the next minute she wants to kill those near her. She prays and meditates daily and asks for spiritual enlightenment. She sees visions and believes that the creations of her mind are true, which is quite impossible. She is just one of countless thousands who expect illumination as their birthright and spirituality as a legacy. They do not realize that the masters must have People who can do things. This lady could not earn five dollars a week in the material world, for she is a li- liability wherever she is, but she believes that she is valuable enough to God for Him to send one of His small bands of masters to teach her against her own will the things she would not understand. Those who want illumination are many, but few are worth the effort nature must make in order to change their lives and produce something useful gonna pause there folks you hear all of that there you see you know the way that he's illustrating this here how you know those who want illumination are many but few are worth the effort nature must make in order to change their lives and produce something useful or is this just the way the secret societies uh, keep the reins of power and control to themselves keep these things to themselves You gotta wonder. Let's continue on. An analysis of this lady shows that she has the following faults: one, she is an incurable egotist; two, she is a pessimist; three, she has a violent temper. This temper poisons her blood. Four, she is selfish. The masters are the opposite, altruistic. Number five, she is emotional. She wastes energy, which is a crime. Number six, she has a neglected body. God will not dwell in a temple that is not kept clean and free of disease. These six things are the dwellers on her threshold. They stand between her and all the beautiful things she wants to be. God will not remove these things from her, but will give her the things she longs for when she proves her worth by mastering her own nature and awakening to her mistakes. God makes a pact with man. If man will prepare the temple of his own life, the Father will take up his dwelling in it. He will be the light of that temple. Let us ask nothing of God until we have done our part. Let us not try to gain spirituality until we have built our tabernacle according to the law given to the children in the days when the earth was young. Now, we're going to move on to this next part here, folks. And I think this is the last section here. Yep, this is it. So, this is the crux of it all. The Sphinx. Who has fathomed the mystery of that expressionless face gazing out in the desert toward the place of the rising sun? That creature with the body of an animal is the guardian of the threshold, the sin body of man. And like the true constitution of man, it is unknown to the majority of people. Before the candidate can go forward in the spiritual work that he was ordained to do, he must wrest the secret of sin from the silent watcher. By concentration and consecration, he must correct, one after another, his own faults, and master, one after another, his own vices, until he can offer to the service of the masters a life without blemish. Then he will be accepted. But few there are who want a life without blemish. All want power. But how few can take the sword of quick detachment and plunge it through the heart of that leering specter, their own lower nature, the dweller on the threshold. And that is the end of the book, folks. So do you hear the mystery of the Sphinx? The Sphinx is this dweller on the threshold, the animal body of man, see? This is what this uh, you know, whole philosophy of masonry and all these other uh, secret society teachings is all about. Okay, it's overcoming the animal nature and achieving a higher, more spiritual nature. And uh, that idea is kind of lofty, and there's nothing wrong with that. And many of the things they talk about are true. But you see, the, the whole crux here is uh, there was a way made for us, see, in order to achieve these things. And all of these different Gnostic type ideas and all of these different approaches to these things will not get you there. Okay? They're not bad things. It's not bad to learn these things or know these things or even put into practice some of these different ideas and philosophies. But uh, when it comes down to it, that's not going to buy you salvation. Okay? That's the bottom line. Uh, there was a way that's been made for us, and all we have to do is accept it as a free gift from God. That's it. That's the bottom line. It doesn't have to be this convoluted the way uh, that these people want to walk this type of a path. And uh, they claim only very few are worthy. And like I said, this is the carrot that they dangle in front of you to lead you down the primrose path to do all the things they want you to do. Because the ultimate ends of it all is control. It's how to control people. It's what they always want. See, Uh, they'll direct you. They'll they'll steer you in these different directions, tell you these things. And some of these ideas are old philosophies and uh, you know many of them hold true. And uh, some of these powers of nature and stuff in particular, I think there's a real basis behind a lot of it. It's just a matter of what are they using it for? Where are they steering you with this? Where are they steering your mind, you see? Uh, when it's been the path has been laid before us and it's simple, but it's a narrow path see, and many people don't want to accept it so they will look at all of this other stuff and say there must be something more logical than this, there must be something more with a lot of these things and that's why people uh, delve into these different occult ideas because they, they don't want to accept the simplicity that's been laid before us as our path for salvation. And uh, they want to explore these different avenues of how the natural order works. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to understand more about how nature works, especially when uh, our world has been steered into this hyper materialist viewpoint and we've been lied to about everything. Because there are people at the topmost levels of the power structure. understand many of these occult philosophies and and many of these different ideas and these old old ideas about how the natural forces work that have been tried and true and tested through the ages and proven so and they know how to manipulate these different energies and forces uh, for the purposes of control to further their own ends so that's kind of uh, where we're at with that whole thing but uh, when it comes down to it, that's not going to buy your salvation, folks. And the time is short. So uh, it's it's a simple matter. Do you accept the free gift or not? It's as plain as that. Even, even if this stuff holds true, okay? Even if what they're pointing out here is you, you can do this. You can do all this hard work and earn your salvation through it. Why would you still go for that route rather than accepting the free gift from God? that has no strings attached, see, whereas doing this, this work, this great work through these many secret societies, uh, there's strings attached, folks, and when you're at the end of a string, you're a puppet, see, and, you know, it's, it's all a matter of choice, um, now, like I said, there's nothing wrong with studying these things, reading these things, and learning what it is that these people believe. And uh, trying to understand a little better some of the the, uh, aspects of how the natural world works. Because a lot of that is contained in these old philosophies as well. And a lot of things are hidden from us. And they're hidden from us for a reason. Because it's all about maintaining that control and that power over the masses. But at any rate, at the end of the day, these unseen forces, there's one all-powerful force. And that's the creator himself, God. And he's got the final say. And he made a way so that his children, that would be us, uh, man created in his image, can have the the key to salvation. Okay? And anybody, all of mankind can have it, not just the select few. That's elitism, folks. That's what these uh, secret societies are all about, elitism. They think they're better than you. They think that they're the only ones worthy. When... God would like for nothing better for all to come to redemption through his son. See? And there's the difference. And like I've said many times, Christ is the stumbling block to all of this. And, and that's the bottom line when it comes down to it. He made a way for all mankind to achieve salvation and uh, get back to uh, atonement with God. It doesn't have to be this convoluted path of occultism and stuff that these secret societies teach. It's an easy way. It's simple. It's really simple. And, you know, that that's the whole thing. They want you to believe it's hard and the very few are worthy and, and that kind of thing. And yeah, it's not an easy path, even when you do accept salvation through Jesus Christ. It's not an easy path at all. But... It's an assured path, whereas, you know, following uh, these teachings of the secret societies, this is not an assured path, for they tell you up front, only the select few are worthy. See, whereas Jesus said, let all come to me. Why would you want to select the path that uh, the, the secret societies have laid out for you when, you know, it's offered as a free gift from God? And you could go that path. And uh, like I, I've stated before, there's nothing wrong with studying these things. I think it's important to study these things so that you know who it is that you're dealing with. And, you know, what it is that you're dealing with. And uh, we're going to dig deeper in the next series I'm going to do here. And it's going to get really interesting because we will point out uh, how these different things are uh are taught in these secret societies and, and the many different forces that uh, they they claim to understand and be able to control and, and things of that nature. And we'll, we'll see. We'll look at some of the fallacies in those ideas. And we'll also uh, attempt to show that uh, they are hostile towards mainline Christianity. See, that that's the thing, that they have this uh, kind of haughty spirit towards the Creator, towards God and they thumb their nose at him. They do not like Christianity, folks. Even though they claim, like a lot of Masons and stuff claim, to be Christians, uh, what they don't understand is at the the very topmost levels of the teachings and the roots of these teachings, it's all uh, very much uh, against uh, the things that God would have for us. But anyway, that's it for tonight. Uh, Thanks for hanging out with me. Have a good night, and we'll see you for the next series. I'm not sure what I'm going to title that one yet, but uh, you'll know when it comes out. And it'll be interesting, some of the things that we dig into and just show what it is that these secret societies teach, what they believe, and what they really think of Christians and Christianity. And also, what they think that they are, or the things that they could achieve, and, uh, you know, just how uh, they see... The world around us and uh, how they see the public and the masses and it's very eye-opening and we'll get there and i appreciate it folks thanks for hanging out with me tonight Uh, we'll see you next time have a good night